Hi, good afternoon. Um, thanks for joining us to talk about the cultural crisis in the Maghreb. I'm Courtney Furrier. I'm a research officer at the Middle East Center, and we have with us, of course, Yusuf Sharif. Um, he's going to speak for about 30 minutes um, about the topic, and then we'll open up for question and answer. Um, if you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Maghreb. Um, and as far as Yusuf, I'm sure many of you know him. Uh, he's a political analyst who specializes in North African affairs. He's a deputy director of Columbia Global Center's Tunis and a member of Carnegie's Civic Research Network, and can, it also contributes to a number of other think tanks. Um, he was previously the Almedan's Libya project manager at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and yeah, peace reporting, and an affiliate, an expert affiliated to the Tunisian Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, he also consulted for the Arab Institute of Business Managers, the UN, the Carter Center, and a number of other um, global centers that I'm sure you all know. He also um, holds a Master of Arts in International Relations from the Department of War Studies at King's, unfortunately not, not from LSE, um, and a Fulbright Master's in Classical Studies from Columbia University. Um, so I'll go ahead and turn it over to Yusuf. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you all. Uh, it's a pleasure and the honor to be back to London and to be here at LSE. Uh, I hope uh, for Kings I'm not a defector now coming to, to LSE and not to Kings. But um, uh, just for the, for the anecdote, uh, I started working on this topic when I was here in London. Um, when I arrived, the London Eye used to be called Emirates. Now it's called Coca-Cola. I think there is something with former subjects using, using that uh, eye. Uh, and uh, so it was called Emirates. There were um, Sheikh, uh, I don't know who, auditorium. There was uh, that uh, Gulf Country program in this university and so on and so on. So I started looking at this. And uh, I started working on it when I was at King's, uh, but also using a lot the library of, of LSE. So again, thank you, LSE. Um, to start with, I will give an overview of the relationship between the five countries forming the um, Arab Maghreb Union, so Mauritania, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, and uh, their relationship with the Gulf countries, and uh, the, mainly the, the main contenders of the, Gulf, of the Qatar crisis, so Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and uh, Qatar, of course. Uh, and then I will conclude with a general assessment and where I think things are moving. Um, so Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar have invested a lot in North Africa since 2011, competing for influence through financial means, through investments, through the cultivation of political clients. Um, and um, in the first years, Qatar, the influence of Qatar peaked. So uh, it was right after the Arab uprisings. The allies of Qatar took leading positions in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, in Morocco, uh, and uh, also Qatar was by then on the same line as these countries in regards of including political Islam in uh, the politics of in day-to-day -day politics, uh, and also Qatar. When the situation uh, degenerated in Libya, Qatar was on the same line as the other countries in terms of encouraging a national dialogue or at least uh, putting some form of national dialogue in, in Libya. Um, on the other hand, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and uh, Sisi's Egypt were um, disagreed completely, be it uh, about the transition or uh, regarding the inclusion of political Islam, uh, and disagreed via soft and hard power, as uh, we saw. Um, after 2013, the role of Qatar, Qatar, which was in the beginning we used to describe, if you remember, in 2011-12, um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE were the status quo country, and Qatar was actually encouraging revolution. After 2013, the, the roles were reversed. So um, following the events in Egypt, following Enada's withdrawal from government in Tunisia, 
uh, and the quasi-state collapse in Libya, uh, Qatar took, uh, became the country that was looking for status quo, um, looking to secure its investments in, in the countries where uh, it still had influence. Um, and uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia were, on the other hand, trying to maximize their, um, their powers and um, trying to change the situation uh, for, their, for their interest. Um, as you remember, in, um, in Egypt, they poured billions of dollars um, to support the, the new regime there. Uh, in Libya, they were, they were arming proxies and, and other um, groups uh, that, uh, that actually fought against the Qatari-backed uh, groups. Um, since the, the crisis of 2017, um, again, these countries all tried to, to find uh, allies in the region, but um, they could not f find a firm, and they did find support uh, in, in the Middle East, uh, in Egypt, but not in the Maghreb countries. Uh, they did spend a lot of efforts, a lot, a lot of money, but in general, the position um, of the North African countries, apart from Mauritania and uh, Eastern Libya, the position was uh, that of neutrality rather than siding with one camp of the, or the other. Um, so the question is, why is that, and how long will that last? So to start with, the very two easy examples, uh, examples that are found on the um, fringes of the Maghreb, Mauritania and uh, Eastern Libya. Uh, these are the two, count the two regions that actually stood uh, in, in the crisis, stood with Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE against Qatar. In the case of Mauritania, which was one of the first countries actually that announced that uh, cut in relationship with uh, Qatar, um, the Mauritanian leaders actually straight away accused Qatar of funding terrorism. They, um, the Islamists in Mauritania uh, opposed that. They opposed any, uh, any move against Qatar, but their voice didn't count, and uh, the ambassador was, uh, was kicked out. Um, Mauritania, although it's located in the westernmost fringes of the uh, Arab world, uh, is largely indebted to Saudi Arabia, financially and politically. Um, but recently, I mean, before 2017, there were issues between the regime of uh, Abdelaziz in Mauritania and the Saudi government, um, and that contributed in, uh, in creating a lot of economic problems in Mauritania because the Saudis stopped or decreased their aid to, to Mauritania. So the Gulf crisis of 2017 represented an opportunity for the Aziz regime to regain the uh, Saudi blessing. On the other hand, the, the Aziz regime... Um, is known to have had personal issues with the emirs of Qatar, uh, this one and the, and the father. Um, Qatar is frequently accused by circles around the uh, current government in Nouakchott of being, uh, of trying to uh, to create another Arab Spring in in um, to create to bring the Arab Spring to Mauritania. And also, Qatar is where uh, the enemy of the current president, who is the former president of Mauritania, Maoul um, Taya, lives. So th there is a lot of animosity between Mauritania and uh, and Qatar. Uh, there is a history for that, and. Um, during that period, uh, Iran actually jumped in, and Iran sent its foreign minister to Nouakchott to try to influence the situation or try to influence uh, Mauritania to take another, uh, another position. But that failed completely, uh, probably under Saudi influence. A lot of anti-Iranian and anti-Shia rhetoric uh, started to be seen in Mauritania. 
a lot of accusations, for instance, by the, uh, I think the Grand Mufti of Mauritania started accusing uh, Iran of uh, proselytism in, uh, in Mauritania. Uh, more recently, just uh, I think a few months ago, the Iranian ambassador was uh, summoned in, uh, by, the, by the foreign ministry in, uh, in Nouakchott, uh, etc. So um, th this is where we, are, where we are when it comes to Mauritania. When it comes to uh, Eastern Libya, I'm saying Eastern Libya, I mean, you all know the division in, in Libya today. Uh, the, the leaders of Eastern Libya, be it the military wing or the political wing, uh, also started accusing Qatar straight away of, uh, of uh, fomenting terrorism in the country, of fomenting rebellion in the country. And um, uh, that was actually on TV. There are a lot of press conferences by, uh, or interviews by, uh, by Eastern Libyan leaders accusing Qatar of being uh, behind the divisions that their country is facing and behind the terrorist groups in the country. Um, the, um, for Eastern Libya, again, this position is no surprise. The group around Haftar, uh, around Khalifa Haftar, has been fighting an existential battle against the Qatari-funded uh, militias in Libya. Um, also, Eastern Libya historically falls under Egyptian influence, so it's um, often the case that Eastern Libya follows uh, the, the trend that, is, um, that takes place in Egypt, in Cairo. Um, ties between the leaders of Eastern Libya and the leaders of, uh, of Egypt and the UAE um, did strengthen after 2014, after Libya was uh, divided in two, with frequent visits, increased cooperation, and substantive aid delivered. For instance, according to public reports, actually, you can see them online by uh, the UN panel on, uh, of experts on Libya, the UAE has been providing the army of uh, General Haftar with uh, attack helicopters, military vehicles, etc. So this is, uh, this is happening. The UAE also uh, has been running a military airport in uh, near Benghazi in Libya, in eastern Libya, since 2015. Uh, Egyptian and Emirati jets, jets occasionally operate in Libyan skies. And um, as you can see, I mean, today eastern Libya is almost an Egyptian Emirati satellite and it does not have any official relationship with Qatar, which makes the alignment natural. Now, to the more interesting stuff, where, which, is the, which are the three remaining countries in uh, North Africa. Uh, the three, Morocco, Tunisia, um, and, um, and uh, Algeria, as well as uh, Western Libya, adopted an official position of neutrality, uh, but a neutrality that is also tacitly biased towards Qatar. Um, in Western Libya, uh, the complete contrary of, uh, of Eastern Libya, um, Tripoli, Tripoli, the government in Tripoli, avoided any bellicose rhetoric against, uh, against Qatar and, uh, and um, against the others and kind of ignored the crisis. Uh, in Western Libya, Qatar is a major player with uh, strong alliances forged in the cities of Tripoli and Misrata and other cities, the, the two big cities of um, Western Libya. And uh, although that was not proved in the recent years, but um, there, it is believed that the military groups in these two cities and in other places in Libya receive substantial funds uh, and military aid from, from Qatar. But again, this was not proved. There are no, um, at least not in the recent years, but th th there is a high probability that that is happening. Um, so the UN-backed government in Tripoli, um, attempting to gain more autonomy and uh, broker a peace deal with Eastern Libya, has been taking steps away from Qatar recently. Uh, Saraj and his envoys, Saraj the Prime Minister and his envoys, 
did visit uh, Egypt, the UAE, Saudi Arabia. Uh, recently in June, actually, Saraj met with uh, MBS in Jeddah. So there are ties between Western Libya and, um, and the axis, the anti-Qatar axis. So it's not the same situation as uh, with Eastern Libya vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Qatar. Um, but uh, the GNA, the, the government of national accords in Tripoli, although it's trying to, to be less dependent on Qatar, does not really have a chance because, first of all, uh, Qatar has the support of many military groups in Western Libya. So if, if the government decides to take a position, an anti-Qatar position, then it will risk major infightings in Western Libya. Uh, and uh, also because the, the Saudis and the Emirates are actually uh, backing the, the main enemy of, of uh, the, the government in, in Tripoli and the groups in Tripoli, Khalifa Haftar. So in other, in other words, um, they, they will need Qatar, first of all, against their enemy and to, uh, to back them in any future negotiations uh, with, uh, with Haftar. So uh, Tripoli took this position of neutrality but kept uh, the doors open when it comes to the, to the other, uh, to, to, to everyone. Um, for Algeria, uh, the official statement again of Algeria in 2017 was that of neutrality. Uh, and uh, it advocated some, it, it, it sent actually a delegation to, led by the foreign minister to mediate last year, but that uh, failed. Um, Algeria actually is, um, is an interesting case because, uh, so right after the crisis in 2017, there was an envoy by the UAE who stopped by Algeria to defend the, uh, the case of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But right after that, Qatar and Iran sent their foreign ministers uh, to Algiers. Um, also, the ambassador of Qatar in Algeria is often hosting public events and meeting with, with, uh, with high-level officials publicly. The, uh, also, uh, in, in December of last year, the head of the Saudi Shura Council uh, visited Algeria. In the same week, the foreign minister of Qatar was in Algeria. So it seems as if Algeria is always trying to, to, to balance the two. Uh, also in uh, February, uh, there was a meeting of the Arab ministers of interior. So of course the Saudi and the Emirati minister of interior was there, but also the Qatari minister of interior. It's always the two sides. Uh, and, um, uh, and actually, uh, both the Saudis and the Emirati and the Qataris are investing a lot in, in Algeria. So, for instance, um, it's, there are a lot of pledges from Saudi Arabia, but when it comes to the UAE, they really invested, uh, for instance, in this uh, steel project uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, in Algeria that, that with a value of $1 billion. Uh, this is of this year. Uh, there is also a joint military production facility between Algeria and the UAE. Um, and uh, so the, the economic relationships are quite uh, big. Um, but Algeria has a lot of disagreements with, uh, with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. First of all, when it comes to oil production, Algeria has a certain strategy that these countries do not have. So at OPEC, they often fight against each other. <laughs> Um, Libya is another point of contention when it comes to uh, the way Algeria uh, deals with these countries. Uh, so Algeria actually um, thinks that the Emirati-Saudi axis is backing uh, a military solution for Libya that Algeria thinks will exacerbate the situation. Uh, plus, Algeria, as the hegemon of North Africa, 
sees from a very uh, bad uh, position the fact that a new hegemonic coalition is coming to to its region. So, um, so this is more of the regional security complex uh, theory issue. And Algeria here is very uh, is quite radical when it comes to uh, threatening its hegemony in in the region. Um, the relationship with Qatar, on the other hand, are uh, a bit uh, more friendly in a way. Uh, so first of all, I described the, the Emirati investment in a, steel, uh, in a steel project in Algeria. Qatar is doing exactly the same thing. Qatar is investing in a steel project, but while the UAE in, is investing $1 billion, Qatar has invested $2 billion in, in a steel project. Uh, and... Um, when it comes to the to OPEC and how uh, how the production of oil uh, is um, is seen, uh, Qatar actually sides with Algeria uh, very often against Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE. Uh, the two countries do share uh, similar views when it comes to Libya, especially today. Uh, they also have good relations with Iran, and. Uh, Last year, actually, Qatar offered the Algerians the right to enter Qatar without a visa. So the, the relationship with Qatar are much, um, are much better, but still, Algeria is keeping good relationships with both sides, and uh, I think it will continue to play the two for, um, for its own interests. And because Algeria is strong enough militarily and economically, it can uh, refuse the pressures coming from, be it from Qatar or from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. When it comes to Tunisia, um, Again, Tunisia stressed, uh, the foreign ministry stressed the country's neutrality in 2017, um, calling for dialogue between all sides. But, uh, and even another, the uh, Islamist party, and again, I will use Islamists and secularists in Tunisia because another say they are not Islamists anymore. And the secularists in Tunisia, they're not that Islamist, they're not that secularists in, in, in regards of the way they use religion sometime in, in politics, and uh, they're not, um, so, secularists and Islamists. Um, so Anahda um, also remained neutral in the crisis, uh, which is a bit surprising knowing the deep relationship between Anahda and, uh, and Qatar, uh, and adopted the official position in Tunisia. If you look at the, at least at the statements by the party and by uh, its head, Rajad Ranoushi, uh, you will find um, neutrality. But um, a member of prominent Anahda members clearly sided uh, with Qatar and uh, criticized Saudi Arabia. The party's unofficial social media pages also uh, did side with Qatar. Uh, many followers of Anahda, when you talk to them, they are openly pro-Qatar. And uh, today in Tunisia, Qatar is actually the biggest Arab investor. It's the second uh, foreign direct investor in the country after France, and uh, also an important diplomatic partner to the country, especially when it comes to Libya. Um, also, Tunisia has very uh, strong ties with Turkey. Uh, Turkey is uh, funding a lot of projects in Tunisia. Most recently, uh, it gave, uh, I think, a loan of $200 million, million dollars, um, to, to Tunisia to improve its uh, security and military uh, forces. Um, and... Um, and so the, the, there is already an, an established relationship, a strong established relationship between Tunisia and the Qatari uh, axis. 
so when the crisis started in 2017, of course, Qatar sent its foreign minister, but uh, it, it, will not, uh, it, it didn't change a lot of things because that was the Tunisia was already taking that position of neutrality and also um, ready to send Qatar uh, milk and uh, other food and, and things that Qatar asked for. Uh, Iran also dispatched its foreign minister in the same time uh, last year. Um, and uh, but anyway, so th this is this is the the position taken by by Tunisia. But um, Qatar and I described how Qatar is kind of liked by uh, segment an important segment of the population. Uh, but also Qatar is kind of hated by the secular elite and the establishment, uh, where Qatar is accused of all the conspiracies uh, you can imagine. Um, the relationships with uh, the UAE, on the other hand, remain tense. Uh, so when you go to the pro-Qatar or the pro-Anahda pro uh, people or social media, uh, they often accuse the, the UAE of attempting to destabilize Tunisia. Uh, by means of leaks or fake news, they, they often uh, bring stories about the UAE um, in trying to... to pull all the strings in, in the country. And I'm, I'm not sure if some of you heard about the story of an attempted coup d'etat in Tunisia this year. Um, it, it, w it was not a big news story in the world, but in Tunisia, everybody was talking about this. And this was partly vehiculated by uh, Qatari media outlets. Um, so, uh, and so the story was about uh, the UAE attempting to, uh, to stage a coup d'etat in Tunisia involving the former minister of, um, of interior. Um, so, um, so in June, uh, as I told you, um, Qatar and Iran sent envoys, but also the UAE actually sent two envoys uh, to try to pressure Tunisia or to, uh, to influence Tunisia. But that didn't lead anywhere because of the already tense situation with the UAE. Um, however, what is interesting with Tunisia is the relations with uh, Saudi Arabia. And... Um, in July 2017, so a month after the crisis started, uh, the Saudi Minister of Commerce visited Tunisia. And I can count maybe uh, five Saudi ministers who visited Tunisia during between um, summer 2017 and summer uh, 2018, including one of the sons of uh, Prince Salman, uh, of uh, King Salman, not MBS, but uh, this guy would be SBS, uh, Sultan bin, uh, bin Salman. Uh, so, so there are a lot of um, co uh, connections between Tunisia and Saudi Arabia, and uh, actually Tunisia joined the Islamic, uh, the, the military co coalition that is uh, fighting in Yemen. Tunisia sent uh, sent uh, advisors uh, there and maybe forces, but uh, that's not at least not public. Uh, also, Tunisia did condemn Hezbollah and Iran in several international um, events. Um, the uh, annual meeting of the uh, Islamic Development, Development Bank Group took place in Tunisia this year, which is a Saudi-backed um, event. Um, the Saudi ambassador is very active in Tunisia. The, um, now that we're talking, the two countries are conducting joint military exercise, exercises in, uh, in Tunisia. And um, actually in 2015, there was an announcement that uh, Saudi Arabia was giving Tunisia around 50 fighter jets, uh, which would represent maybe 80% of the, of the Tunisian combat, fle combat fleet. Uh, and um, 
I don't know where that is today. The, 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 the jets are not, that, are not yet in Tunisia. But when you hear the story of Saudi Arabia uh, helping an army in the Arab world, you all have to remember what happened in Lebanon when Saudi Arabia started backing the Lebanese army. But that was against Hezbollah. So Saudi Arabia now backing the Tunisian army against whom? That's uh, a major question. Uh, and here, um, a year ago, now I'm retweeting myself, actually. A year ago, I wrote an article at, uh, for the Atlantic Council uh, titled The Gulf Crisis Threaten, Threatens Tunisia's Stability. I then warned that what was happening in the Gulf, uh, what, hap what is happening in the Gulf, uh, will deepen the polarization between Islamists and secularists uh, in Tunisia. Uh, a year later, today, um, Tunisia is actually... In a, in a, the political situation in Tunisia is so polarized that it's described that people describe what is happening today to what happened in Tunisia in 2012 and 13, uh, which was the period where Tunisia was really in a political crisis. Uh, and uh, the accusations, the mutual accusations between Anahda and the secularist groups are reaching uh, new levels. So it's unclear if if, if the, the two things are related, it's unclear if, um, if, the, if uh, the current polarization in Tunisia is related to the rapprochement with Saudi Arabia, uh, but it's curious to note the coincidence, and um, I think we'll, we'll see more and more polarization in Tunisia uh, that is partly affected by the crisis in, in the Gulf. Uh, to finish with, uh, um, I will talk about Morocco, because um, Morocco actually, I'm finishing with Morocco because that's the most, um, the, the position taken by Morocco is the most, sur was the most surprising ones, one uh, for, uh, for, the, for regional observers. Um, Morocco, uh, again, took a uh, position of neutrality, uh, but Morocco is actually Saudi Arabia's closest ally in, in the Maghreb. Uh, Morocco's uh, expatriates, the biggest number of Moroccan expatriates leave, uh, after France, leave between Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE. Uh, and that means a lot to the country's economy. Uh, in 2016 alone, Riyadh pledged uh, $22 billion of, um, of aid to, to Morocco. Again, that did not come, but still, that, that was a very powerful pledge. Um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are Morocco's top um, Arab trade partners. But as I said, Morocco very quickly signaled its uh, neutrality in June 2017, and in a matter of days sent shipments of food to Doha. As I said, Tunisia did the same thing, but very uh, kept silent and, uh, and did it almost uh, under the, the, the radar. Morocco did issue statements about this, and it was publicly uh, acknowledged that Morocco was, send, was sending uh, food shipments to, uh, to Qatar. Um, so th that was, again, a very, a very big surprise. And I think by remaining neutral, um, Morocco tried to show its discontent to Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the UAE. Discontent because there are a lot of disagreements between Morocco and these two countries. Uh, first of all, in 2011, the Gulf Cooperation Council, led by Saudi Arabia, uh, prom promised to invest heavily in the kingdom and even offered Morocco to join. But very little materialized. Um, Morocco joined the war, the war on Yemen and most Saudi-led initiatives, but it got limited advantages in return. Uh, so King, uh, the king of Morocco, Mohammed VI, started diverging from the Saudi line. Uh, so, for instance, when uh, the, the, the coup happened in Egypt in 2013, Morocco refused to acknowledge, to, to recognize the new uh, regime in Egypt and cut it, uh, ties with, uh, with Egypt. 
uh, also on Yemen, there are a lot of disagreements from the Moroccan side, although it's still part of the coalition. Um, in uh, 2014, uh, uh, Morocco resumed its relation, its ties with uh, Iran, reopened the embassy with Iran. Uh, the, the, the relationships did break in uh, 2009, and um, so in, in 2014, the Iranian ambassador was back to, to Rabat. Um, plus, Morocco is often angered by the way the Saudi and the Emirati media criticized the uh, model that Morocco adopted, that of including political Islam with the PJD. Uh, and uh, there is also maybe one last thing uh, about the about how Morocco um, perceives the, the the UAE and Saudi Arabia and the politics of UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, that's actually in relation to how Morocco sees the Western Sahara. Uh, you know that the UAE has some kind of policy. Uh, of encouraging separatist entities. It's, it's not a um, fully declared policy, but when you look at what the UAE is doing in eastern Libya, what the UAE is doing in southern Yemen, what the UAE is doing in Somaliland, um, to a certain extent to, uh, to in, in Gaza, uh, there, is, there is some support by the UAE to regions that are kind of uh, taking a separatist, um, a separatist uh, move. And that's a big source for, uh, of concern for Morocco because of the Western Sahara that, uh, that Morocco sees as its first uh, national security uh, concern. But having said all this, the Moroccans also want to keep uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE as uh, allies. Um, they feel, maybe they feel that they are close enough to Saudi Arabia, for instance, to take bold decisions such as this neutrality with, with Qatar without risking a backlash. And uh, this was, at least last year, corroborated by the fact that King Salman did spend his summer in, in Morocco, uh, as if nothing happened. This was um, two months after the, the, the crisis in, of Qatar began. Um, also, for instance, when uh, King Mohammed VI visited Qatar in November of last year, he also visited the UAE uh, to try to show that he's not taking sides. Uh, it seems that he also tried to visit Saudi Arabia, but that didn't work. The, um, he met with uh, MBS earlier this year and uh, in Paris, not in Saudi Arabia. Also, uh, we see in, in Morocco a similar trend to the one we see in Mauritania, where uh, there is a lot of anti-Iranian rhetoric and an anti-Shia rhetoric. Uh, and uh, in May, actually, the Iranian ambassador who came back in 2014 was kicked out again, like what happened in 2019. Uh, actually, th th and that this, this time it's even uh, more serious because uh, it's on not only the accusations of proselytism and, and, uh, and uh, activism, uh, religious activism, but also Iran was accused to be, uh, I can't remember very well, but Iran was accused to be uh, helping Hezbollah through Algeria, uh, helping to channel weapons to uh, the Western Sahara. So a very James Bond scenario, but that was publicly uh, given by, by Morocco, uh, and, uh, and, so, and so the Iranian ambassador was kicked out. Um, and uh, during the Hajj of this year, this summer, uh, the, the king sent uh, the, a delegation, with a delegation he sent the Minister of Tourism, who actually conveyed a message from him to King Salman, inviting him to, uh, to Morocco. Uh, Salman did not answer yet. But we, we see that 
Morocco is also trying to uh, to calm down the Saudis or and the Emirates and to uh, restart the relationship uh, or to keep the relationship good. But it seems that this time, at least um, this year, a year later, that ang- that uh, Riyadh is a bit angry. Uh, in June this year, Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, sided with the U.S. against Morocco in its bid to host the. 2026 uh, World Cup of uh, football. There were also a lot of negative comments by Saudi officials against the Moroccan uh, regime. Uh, This summer, King Salman did not come to to Morocco, and this is a big blow for Morocco's, first of all, political um, uh, PR, uh, because when when the king comes to Morocco, that's actually the court, the Saudi court, that moves to to, uh, Morocco. So a lot of foreign guests come and uh, and that that gives Morocco actually uh, a very important image in the world and also it's uh, usually when the king comes that's that means millions are spent in in the region where he spends his uh, his summer um, so maybe the situation is actually uh, going bad in in the relationship because uh, and actually although although Qatar is uh, now investing a lot of Morocco but it can, at least now it's not competing with the investments of Saudi Arabia and uh, and the UAE uh, but it seems also that the Moroccans took the decision to improve the relationships with with Qatar for some reason. Uh, so there are a lot of mutual visits. Most recently, the, um, the Prime Minister, the Qatari Prime Minister was in, uh, was in Morocco this year. Uh, the Qatari Emir was in Morocco for a private visit this summer. Uh, and um, also the Qataris have been uh, backing Morocco in, uh, diplomatically when it comes to uh, mediating in Libya. Uh, the um, the ruling Islamist party, the PJD, the equivalent of Nahda in Tunisia, uh, did like what Nahda did, uh, side through its social media and through many of its members, did side with uh, with Qatar. But again, officially, it took a position of neutrality. Uh, and um, as a reward, uh, Qatar granted the Moroccans uh, the right to enter without visa. So the same thing they did with Algeria, but they still didn't do it with, uh, with Tunisia. Uh, and I think also one other reason why Qatar is uh, getting close with, with uh, why Morocco is getting close to, uh, to Qatar is because it is afraid that sidelining Qatar will push it uh, towards uh, closer relationship with Algeria. And this for Morocco would be a nightmare uh, because, again, uh, from the Moroccans, there is always the threat that the Algerians uh, would try to, to do more things when it comes to the Western Sahara. Uh, so I, I know I'm a few minutes late, so I'm concluding with this. Uh, the traditional diplomacy of neutrality is, uh, of course, a key part of the reason why the uh, North African countries, the Maghreb countries, most of the Maghreb countries um, remain neutral. Uh, they all claim to be to have always been uh, neutral since, or at least since independence, uh, in in all affairs in the world. But uh, I think their hesitation or their neutrality uh, is essentially driven by fears from this Saudi Emirati uh, hegemonic coalition uh, or kind of expansionism in in the region, um, and that that pushed their uh, their reaction. Uh, which actually found uh, Qatar uh, trying to to use all its soft power to uh, to make that uh, that position uh, work. Uh, 
Um, so, th so the threat that th these countries saw, saw from uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, seemed less dangerous, let's say, than what was coming from Qatar. Uh, Qatar, which is now becoming the weaker player in, in, in the game. So Qatar was actually ready to provide funds, but with less conditions, which is not the case when it comes to the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, interestingly, the, the, this crisis did put uh, Algeria and Morocco on, on the same line, which is an almost uh, very rare feature in, uh, in, North, African, in North African affairs. Um, but as the cases of Eastern Libya and Mauritania demonstrate, this is not a shared position in, in the region. Uh, and I think the, the standoff between Qatar and the UAE will, for instance, uh, extend the civil war in, in Libya. Uh, also, many of the countries forming the Maghreb, uh, the southern belt of the Maghreb, so Chad, Niger, and even uh, to a certain extent Senegal, um, did side with Riyadh. So th th there are a lot, of, um, a lot of different positions that are fragmenting the region. Uh, also, the pressures by uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE on Morocco and Tunisia uh, are increasing. We see more and more pressures, more and more uh, activism from Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Tunisia and Morocco. And if such pressures work, if Tunisia and Morocco take a position, take an anti-Qatari position, uh, that can trigger social and political uh, issues in, in the countries. Um, that would also put the two countries at odds with their big neighbor, Algeria. It's not a big problem for Morocco, but for Tunisia, that's, that's a major issue to have uh, Algeria um, taking an, an angry position. Um, it would also make Tunisia more vulnerable to threats coming from uh, the Western Libya, which is a Qatari Turkish, uh, which is a place of Qatari Turkish influence, and so on. So um, I think the longer the Gulf countries are divided, the more North Africa will be impacted, uh, and uh, that will um, inevitably have repercussions on Europe. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was really comprehensive. I've been to a lot of talks on the cultural crisis, uh, but haven't learned so much as, as I have in this one. So thanks for that. Um, we'll open up to questions, comments. Um, if you could just identify yourself and keep it brief rather than kind of a full explanation of your thesis, that would be great. Um, so who wants to start? I guess. Marcus In the UE, there's this not publicly outspoken impression that the leading force behind this anti-Qatari campaign is the royal family of Abu Dhabi, as opposed to the royal family of Dubai. Do you share that opinion? I, I heard it a lot. Um, it's possible. But today, the military force is in Abu Dhabi. So even if that's the case, I don't think uh, the royal family of Dubai can do much uh, to, to stop it. But it's, it's possible. But would that lead to maybe the Dubai royal family having like a role of a mediator? Um, but they, they're not using that, uh, that role. Maybe, um, I think, for instance, when I look at Tunisia, uh, Sharjah was, do was doing that role in a way, uh, where there were a lot of um, princes, uh, I think even ministers uh, of, of, uh, sh from Sharjah coming to Tunisia even during this crisis. Uh, but I don't see Dubai doing that at all. So at, at least when, when it comes to Tunisia, um, Dubai did not at all try to, to do any mediation, for instance. Mm. Yes, uh, yeah. um, Michael Mason, Middle East Centre. I was interested when you talked about Tunisia both receiving 
uh, substantial assistance from, from Qatar and Turkey. And um, the question is around the extent to which you might detect some kind of coordination, perhaps, between what Turkey is doing in the region and Qatar, because uh, Qatar has helped Turkey out in the summer, popping up the Turkish lira with a massive investment. So is, is this just contingent associations? Are you seeing some sort of coordination to enable the Qatari to kind of strengthen their position in the region? I think they are... The, the policy, at least in Tunisia and in Libya, uh, the Qatari and the Turkish policies are very, I think there is clearly a coordination. Um, and, um, and this is not just to strengthen the Qatari position, but I think Turkey here as well has a lot of, of interests. I didn't talk about Turkey today, but uh, I can easily add Turkey to, to all what I've been saying. Uh, and uh, so I think it's, uh, th there, is a, there is a joint uh, cooperation here. And um, uh, and when it comes to Tunis, both of them, the, the Qataris and the Turks, um, have been providing a lot of aid. But interestingly, in Tunis, I think um, the Turks were helping a lot the military and the police um, more than Qatar. This is perhaps because of the um, resentment that I described uh, at, among the establishment. Um, but uh, maybe there is kind of... Uh, uh, they're sharing roles in uh, in Tunisia, but there is clearly uh, uh, coordination. Thank you. Um, you. You touched on um, the accessory uh, role um, of the media covering uh, events in Tunisia. Can you um, explain what influence that has? Mm -hmm. So the. For North Africa and most of the Arab world today, the most influential uh, media outlets are Gulf-funded media outlets. Um, and, and so, of course, it's the same in Tunisia. You have uh, the you have local media outlets that actually uh, take news that that are first published or broadcasted in uh, Emirati or Saudi or Qatari media, and uh, take them as they are and present them to the Tunisian public. Um, and so when it comes to the, to the um, Qatari media, just I mentioned the story of the, the coup d'etat, uh, which appeared in a non-Qatari, non-Gulf uh, media, but it was very quickly uh, taken as a, as a big news piece with lives by Al Jazeera, Arabic, and, um, and then by uh, online uh, outlets that are uh, Qatari-funded, although not... They don't declare that they are Qatari-funded, but uh, clearly pro-Qatar. Uh, so they share this story about this coup d'etat. And then uh, th then it, it went into Tunisian social media among the pro-Qatari groups in Tunisian social media. So how that's affecting the, the public opinion? Uh, because actually, first of all, when it's on Facebook, everybody reads. Um, and some of these stories are uh, sponsored, but some are simply shared and shared again. And so uh, in a matter of, um, I think, three, four days, uh, that was the story that everyone was talking about. Um, but before that one, there were uh, a series of uh, supposed leaks from uh, Emirati. Uh, one was from the uh, Emirates uh, EPC, Emirates Policy Policy Council, Council. Uh, and one from uh, supposedly again, I'm, I'm saying supposedly because uh, th these were leaks that were leaked by Qatari uh, online media outlets uh, and another one uh, from uh, the, the Emirati Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, 
where actually it was said, I mean, in, in these leaks that um, uh, the UAE was planning uh, revolts in Tunisia and, and supporting social movements in Tunisia and supporting uh, groups in Tunisia that are openly opposed to Qatar. Uh, and this was widely shared in, in the Tunisian uh, social media and actually uh, in media, and everybody was talking about it. So this is creating a lot of uh, anti-UAE uh, sentiments in the country. But again, uh, this is what Qatar is doing. The UAE and Saudi Arabia is doing exactly the same thing, and uh, maybe because they are stronger uh, in, in, in number and in, uh, and in finance, they are uh, creating the same thing. So the, the, the final result is to have um, a deeper and deeper polarization in society uh, of people who, without knowing it or without feeling it, are end up in, in the two different camps um, fighting each other. The good thing with Tunisia is that people don't fight with weapons, but at least uh, they do fight in, um, um, in, in public spaces, in the media, uh, in, in sometimes among the same families. And um, this is a very dangerous polarization that uh, really we've seen it in 2012-13 and we see it again today and, uh, and we have elections next year in Tunisia. So uh, I think we'll see more and more polarization in, in Tunisia because of this. Uh, uh, yes. Oh, yeah, I'll take a couple. Yeah, uh, yes, you and... Yeah. Working gap, but do Oman and Kuwait have any role to play? <laughs> Yes, ma'am, in the uh, Yes, sir, yeah. Um, two questions, really. So you've been you talking about the impact of the gold crisis in the macro, but I wonder if maybe you could turn it around. What impact has this had on sort of Tunisian nationals, Algerians, Moroccans who are based in the Gulf? Has this had any consequence on them? Uh, and the second thing is you ended your talk by saying this had implications, spillover implications for Europe. I wonder if you could sort of mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. Um, and yes, we'll take one more. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon. My question was about succession in Algeria. So as you know, there is a vacuum in leadership as such. Do the different Gulf states have potential people that they're fostering or indeed uh, backing? Okay. Um, on Oman and Kuwait, uh, it's interesting because uh, Kuwait, I think, at least now we'll talk more about Tunisia. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of um, governments in the world were trying to push Kuwait uh, to play a role in Tunisia, which would be the mediation role uh, with the UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, and also uh, to invest in in Tunisia, uh, because. Because in, you know, if you look at Kuwait today, it's a little bit like Tunisia in in North Africa, as a country where more or less there is a parliament in its region. Uh, it's it's kind of a unique um, unique situation. Of course, there are a lot of differences, but if you take the Gulf and North Africa, there are there are similarities. Uh, and Kuwait was uh, a big investor in Tunisia in the uh, 70s, the 80s, uh, but then that ended with the, the Gulf War when uh, the, f the first the, um, uh, Iraq-Kuwait uh, War when Tunisia sided with Saddam Hussein. Um, so uh, the, the, there are a lot of attempts, uh, also mainly by the by the American government, at least during Obama, uh, uh, to, to bring Kuwait to to play a role in Tunisia. 
but they but they've been very uh, slow and very uh, and but and I think this is this is the the, the problem with Kuwait after uh, after the the 1990 uh, crisis uh, where it's much less active in uh, in the world. So, so Kuwait is not playing any role today. But that's that's always on the table. With Oman, um, in Tunisia and Libya, there is an uh, Ibadi minority uh, that is actually uh, very close to uh, to the Ibadi community in uh, in Oman, uh, and there is a lot of um, help coming from Oman to these uh, communities. Uh, in Libya, this is again this is this is not this was not uh, disclosed, so I don't have proofs. But um, it seems that uh, Oman helped some of the groups, the Ibadi groups that fought against Gaddafi in 2011, um, at least in, in medical terms, but uh, with medical aid, but possibly w with uh, allowing them to get weapons. And in Tunisia, it's also helping the Ibadi community uh, through mainly through uh, cultural um, uh, aid, and, uh, and it's doing the same thing in Algeria. But uh, I think Oman is... Um, it's, it's trying to avoid any um, any serious or any uh, real um, uh, or concrete uh, role in, in in this region. So it's mainly really on a, on a soft power level today. Uh, when it comes to the the expats uh, in the Gulf. Um, it didn't uh, really affect them, at least not not the most recent crisis. Uh, but it did with Tunisians. I mean, it, it actually did. Uh, th th there is some positive aspect to this because, uh, as I said, uh, Qatar uh, lifted the visa for Algerians and Moroccans, so now more Algerians and Moroccans can can go to Qatar, uh, and uh, also accepted much more Tunisians to come and work uh, in um, in uh, Qatar. Um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia did not really react, did not use the, the communities, the uh, Moroccans and North African communities against their countries or they, they did not do, for instance, what, uh, uh, what, was, what was feared uh, when Egypt was having difficulties with, um, with UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so they were not kicked out. But when it comes to Tunisia... Uh, there is uh, there were a lot of pressures on Tunisian nationals living in the UAE. Uh, there is a lot of uh, visas are not given uh, easily to Tunisians to go to the UAE. Uh, so work visas were denied, a lot of work visas, uh, and uh, even there was even a ban for Tunisians to enter the UAE. And uh, it, it was a big uh, story in December of last year when actually the ban was against Tunisian women to enter the UAE, uh, and that was um, so. That was, <laughs> and it's funny because that was very quickly used by uh, the Qatari media outlets to frame it as a, you know, from a gender perspective, and this is the UAE uh, against women and uh, the macho society against women, and it, it was a big, um, a big bad PR for the UAE. So this is, this is maybe the only uh, problem that, uh, that some nationals from North Africa faced in, in the Gulf. It's Tunisians in the UAE. Um, the spillover on Europe, what I meant mainly is if this, uh, if this, if the um, uh, if the divisions continue in North Africa, if uh, if North Africa actually, uh, if there is a destabilization in North Africa, uh, you will have more problems coming from Libya, first of all, be it terrorism or migration, uh, and. Uh, 
you know, a place like uh, Tunisia also, if Tunisia is um, destabilized, uh, that also means issues of, uh, of terrorism and migration to Europe. Uh, and um, and also, you know, I mean, this is this is the th southern belt of Europe. So, uh, if this region is uh, becomes uh, what we see in in uh, let's say Syria and Iraq, uh, so this will this will be a big uh, a big issue of Europe. So, not I mean, not specific reasons, but in general, if North Africa is destabilized, uh, this is what happened. The succession in Algeria, frankly, I don't have any uh, information about this. Uh, but again, uh, I don't think anyone can give you any uh, answer on Algeria because on Algeria I got used to uh, listening to one version and the exact contrary uh, of what is happening there and usually by very um, high-level people or people who are very well-informed. Um, so I, I really don't know, but it's very possible because of the, of the, um, um, of the change of, of leadership that we're witnessing uh, now. But I don't have any information about it. Another set of questions. Yes, sir. Um, just a more fundamental question, I suppose. Um, do you find uh, this, this boycotts and sanctions, do you find them unjustified or do you just find them clumsy or, or neither? And what, what's your, your approach to that for the fundamental question of the actual boycott? Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, and I'm a master's student uh, in more studies at Kings. So I just want to let you know you're not alone. I think we're all, as long as, got, as long as I don't get beaten up after this. I think. <laughs> um, my question was, on in terms of envisioning an easing of tensions between Saudi and Qatar, between the two roles within the Gulf, what do you imagine would have to happen? And there was one up there. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I just wanted to have your opinion about the Iranian crisis. Um, the second wave of sanctions is fast approaching, and it's going to put pressure on our trade in the region. So those countries that used to be traditionally neutral, such as Oman, is soon probably going to have to choose between Saudi pressure or actually boosting trade with Iran. So I just wanted to know whether you thought that would also change maybe or see a shift of alliances in, in the Maghreb region as well. Thank you. Um, when it comes to, um, to the boycott, um, I think if, if I was a Saudi or an Emirati decision makers, yes, that's definitely what I will do. That's pure real politic and uh, they have an enemy next door or they have uh, a country that is they see is playing against their um, their national interests and so definitely that's um, that's how things are in in an anarchical uh, world and especially today where you have less um, American leadership uh, and where uh, so they are left to to act uh, by themselves uh, now if we go to the more ethical part of the story, uh, of course, a blockade is always uh, a bad thing. And so uh, then uh, if I was f so from the Qatari side, that's the right thing to do, to side with uh, Iran and to look for um, for allies outside of um, of the region. Uh, but um, the, the only problem here is uh, they, uh, or at least the Saudis and the Emirates, by, uh, by taking this decision, the, this blockade, uh, so they moved very far uh, in, 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 their, uh, in their move. And so there is no, uh, it's, it's very hard now to go back. Uh, so what is next? So the next, either, either they topple the regime in Qatar um, or they go to war against Qatar. 
uh, or um, at least now I don't see them uh, getting together anytime soon. So th they went very far. Um, I don't know if they if they calculated all this and they saw where things are going. Uh, they went very far, and so now they are in a situation where they cannot uh, retract, and um, um, and um, and no one can say where where things are heading uh, there. Uh, what can be done to ease tensions? I mean, related to this uh, to this point, um, it's uh, now things uh, went went too far, and uh, I think the attempted mediations, for instance, by uh, Kuwait, did try a lot. But again, you know, going to what I was saying about Kuwait, Kuwait doesn't have a big weight uh, politically today. And also Kuwait is actually, uh, the mediation is led by the, the prince of Kuwait, who is um, uh, quite old today, uh, and, um, and who, you know, you don't have the equivalent of MBS and MBZ in, in Kuwait. Uh, so th th that mediation is not leading um, anywhere. Uh, Oman is actually trying to, to mediate, but again, um, Oman is, is quite weak in, in that region. And uh, the, the maybe the only the only solution to ease the to ease uh, the situation uh, can come from uh, from the U.S. Uh, that's the only player that can really um, put them together and uh, and uh, and have them discuss. But again, uh, the U.S. Uh, during um, during Obama, from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, thought that um, Obama was actually getting closer to Iran against their national interests, uh, and uh, and uh, they thought that um, America was pulling out of the Middle East. So uh, so that's that didn't work during Obama. During Trump, uh, we see clearly that uh, he. The Trump administration is not that interested in the Middle East, and itself, the Trump administration is facing a lot of divisions. So um, today, let's say the U.S. is not very interested and uh, not strong enough to impose uh, something. So maybe if there is a change in the in the U.S. leadership in one or two years, um, maybe that then the U.S. can come back and try to ease tensions. But uh, now I don't see that um, anyone can can do anything. And Again, we, we see a continuous escalations, escalation between them. Most recently, the story of that they, they want to transform Qatar into a real uh, island. So Al Jazeera will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> so, the, uh, on, the, um, on the Iran crisis and what uh, Oman will do, uh, I think um, uh, Oman was able to, to manage until now. Uh, I think it's... Um, uh, it was also able to mediate a lot of crises, and uh, that the Saudis and the Emirates are aware of it. Uh, and so while Kuwait is actually small and uh, quite weak politically, uh, Oman is actually bigger, uh, it's, um, although it's, uh, it's not as rich as Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, but it's, um, it has its own weight, it's, it has its history. Uh, so, I, uh, you know, until now, the, the pressures on Oman were not that, that big. And you can see, for instance, um, Kuwait, although it's uh, taking a position of neutrality, uh, but whenever there is, um, whenever the Saudis, for instance, want to uh, or ask Kuwait to, to move, to, to put money on the table, uh, the Kuwaitis do it. 
uh, in Egypt in 2013. The, I mean, the Kuwaiti leadership was not okay with what happened in Egypt, but they followed the um, the Saudis. Uh, in Jordan this year, um, when the Saudis and the Egyptians and the uh, Emirates um, uh, did actually uh, give money to to the to the Jordanian government, also Kuwait was with them. And so Kuwait is neutral, but when when the Saudis ask for something, Kuwait follows. Oman does not. And um, I, that's why I think even in the future, uh, they they cannot exert a lot of pressures on Oman and they are aware of the role that Oman can play if they are going towards easing the tensions in, in the future. Uh, sorry, we just... Sorry. Mm -hmm. okay, uh, yeah, more questions, I think. Did you have one? No, sorry. <laughs> Did you have a question? Or, yeah. uh, yes, I have a question. So, so um, you, you mentioned that some, some of the members of the Gulf Coalition tried to isolate like Qatar, some of them are a bit more lukewarm to the idea of the blockade, and some of them are outright neutral. Have we seen evidence, what evidence have we seen that Qatar is attempting to exploit that and use that to secure a more favorable outcome with Saudis? Because we've already seen them attempt it similarly with a very large PR campaign in the United States, and we saw how the Trump administration kind of eased off its rhetoric when it came to Qatar as a result of that. Are we seeing it similarly within the Maghreb or the wider Middle East? Uh, and you had a question. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you also mentioned um, that Anahda and the JPD or PGD. PGD, yeah. um, that they were like officially not supporting Qatar during the crisis, but like actually mm -hmm. they might have another position. So would you see this just as part of a strategic moderation? Because then this would actually speak against a greater division in the Maghreb. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I have one more question. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, uh, can you say something about the extent of the export of Wahhabism to the region? So the PR campaign uh, in the Maghreb, um, it there is there is a big PR campaign, but not uh, not similar to what we saw in uh, Europe and uh, and uh, the U.S. Uh, I think m mainly because um, you know uh, when we move out of the you know take the U.S. for instance in New York there were these big um, banners recently of um, about Saudi Arabia and uh, I think in Times Square a picture of King Salman. Um, but um, American, I mean, people in New York, for instance, will look at it, so they will remember or, s or think about Saudi Arabia today, and the day after they will completely forget about it. So the, the uh, there is a PR campaign. So when when one of the uh, players does a PR campaign, the other needs to do it because uh, that's people are not thinking about about the Gulf in in, the, in day to day life. In the Maghreb, I mean, first of all, most I mean, yeah, most uh, people in the Maghreb are Muslims and they dream of going to the Hajj. And the Hajj, we want it or not, is a big PR campaign for Saudi Arabia for free, given by God. So it's uh, it's that, so that's that's one thing that Saudi Arabia has. And so um, uh, here, Saudi Arabia doesn't need to do more than it, but it, it does actually through offering uh, a lot of uh, free Hajj uh, packages to, to poor people in, in the countries in the Maghreb. Um, and so Qatar, in the, uh, on the other hand, uh, needs to, to 
to do more uh, PR campaigning, and this goes uh, from uh, giving aid to uh, poorer uh, people uh, or uh, or funding projects for for the youth, um, or uh, uh, I mean the the visa thing for the Algerians and the Moroccans. That's that was a big PR uh, PR victory for for Qatar. Um, so, so we see that we see that in uh, a lot in uh, in the Maghreb and a lot, a lot of other examples of of PR um, used by these countries. Uh, when it comes to Wahhabism, it's um, you know th that question would have been because um, I, th I think the export of Wahhabism by the Saudis. Uh, is going through a transition these these days, uh, not because MBS is a reformer, he's definitely not, but uh, because the, the Wahhabism itself is um, is losing uh, the, the strength it had before. Uh, so it's it's difficult to answer uh, the, the question uh, and and to say if if Saudi Arabia is still exporting Wahhabism today or not. In Libya, for instance, however. Uh, there is a, there are clear attempts of uh, not attempt there is clear funding for uh, Wahhabi inspired groups uh, in both in east and west uh, and um, so they are getting money from uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia uh, but not for the sake of of spreading Wahhabism but rather uh, because they are actually armed groups that are uh, fighting uh, in in and so that's um, advancing the uh, the uh, advancing the uh, uh, interests of of Saudi Arabia and the UAE in um, in the region um, and um, in Tunisia now during this um, the joint military exercise that uh, that I mentioned um, a very interesting uh, story came out, which is of um, a Saudi officer, military officer, in a Tunisian military base, um, giving the uh, the preach, the the Islamic preach, uh, the adhan, and um, it was uh, on on pro-Saudi social media. It was shared as this is the first time since um, French colonialism that the adhan is heard in a Tunisian military base. Uh, so is that a way of exporting uh, Wahhabism or of exporting Islam to a country like Tunisia? Um, that's, um, it's possible. But again, the, the Wahhabism is going, I mean, the, this, this uh, policy of exporting Wahhabism is now going through a lot of changes. So I'm, um, I, I can't really say that this is what they're doing in, uh, in the region. Not on PJD. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the, the PJD. Uh, if um, the, the position actually, I think it's uh, from from PJD from Anahda, uh They did enjoy a lot of uh, support by Qatar from before 2011. Uh, they, I mean, if, if you count the visits by the leaders from PJD and from Anahda to Qatar. Uh, they are countless. <laughs> it's it's on on an almost monthly basis between 2011 and 2013. Uh, but still, I mean, every year um, the leaders of another PGD do go to Qatar, usually for some kind of conferences. But that means also a lot of um, political meetings. Uh, there are a lot of stories about uh, Qatari funding going to another and PGD. Again, no one can prove that um, uh, fully, but uh, there is high, it's uh, very possible. Uh, and 
the the grassroots of these parties uh, are actually pro pro Qatar. So um, uh, so even though the another NPGD officially took a neutral position because uh, again this goes to their own internal uh, the, to the internal politics of of these countries. Both another NPGD um, they have a strategy of portraying themselves as national parties uh, and uh, to you know to to enter in the uh, in the mold of, um, of of the nation states of, of Tunisia and Morocco uh, and actually to avoid the accusation of being Muslim Brotherhood so the, the, the rhetoric is that they are national parties that abide only uh, by national laws and by national standards uh, and so they always try to uh, to stick to the official position um, but they they have to to deal with their grassroots uh, and also with um, the long history of, of uh, support from from Qatar. Uh, so they, their positions are not coordinated, but uh, they are taking these positions because uh, because of these issues. The issues I mentioned. So um, this uh, strategic moderation then wouldn't speak for greater division. And that, that um, you, you mean greater division in in, in, in these countries, mm. like, for instance, Morocco and Tunisia? Mm -hmm. No. Uh, other questions? Uh, yes, sir. How is the disappearance of the Saudi journalist uh, Khashoggi in Istanbul perceived by public opinion in the Maghreb? Mm -hmm. How is it reported by media in the Maghreb? So I think, uh, I mean, and some of us know, know Jamal, and this is so, uh, for me, for instance, yes, this was a big, a big shock, but... Uh, I think in public opinion, this is, you will find most people uh, heard about the story from the Qatari uh, media outlets. So because this was from day one, from, 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 the, la from the first time it was uh, put online, um, Qatari media outlets starting by Al Jazeera started uh, uh, broadcasting lives about the story. And uh, and it was uh, and of course I mean it's also a horrible story. So once that that made it to the stage of uh, of people talking about it, it became uh, a big a big story. Um, but it's uh, but m many I mean I don't think a lot of people know him in uh, in the Maghreb. Uh, he's not as known as uh, in in the Middle East and uh, in the Gulf. Um, but because of the, the way the Qatari media outlets uh, picked the story, that was for the people who are already in the anti-Qatari uh, and, and anti-Saudi and anti-Emirati uh, side, that was one more proof that Saudi Arabia is, um, is, an, um, is the dictatorship uh, that it is. Um, but um, the, you know that story actually from the Emirati and the Saudi media outlets uh, is now described as uh, rather it was a Qatari plot or a Turkish conspiracy and so on and so on. Uh, but that's interestingly, uh, people are not really talking about this. So I think, at least in, in Jamal's case, um, the, um, the anti-Saudi, anti-Emirati uh, side did win. Other questions, comments? Uh, yes. Well, it's just a second one. Um, you're talking about a mediator. Do you think the, the, the EU or Russia will take an interest? Mm -hmm. I'll take one more in this round. Is there anyone else? No? All right. 
Yeah. On Mauritania, um, I don't follow Mauritania politics that much, but uh, I mean, uh, Mauritania is actually um, a dictatorship, and so opposition parties anyway do not have a big, uh, big say in politics, and uh, the political space is closing year after year. Uh, the, the, you know, it's it's sad to say this about Mauritania, but um, ten years ago, I think it was the first, the real. I mean, people often say that Tunisia is the first democracy in the Arab world, but that's not true. Mauritania was actually the first place where free and fair elections, in the way we know them today, um, happened, and uh, that um, that democratic um, opening lasted uh, a few months, uh, like a year, and then uh, there was a coup and. Um, and the coup actually, uh, and, and the general who did the coup is the current uh, president of Mauritania. And so his goal was never to, to establish democracy in the country. And um, now that he's getting closer and closer to the Emirates and the Saudis, uh, there are more chances that the kind of system that he will establish is more the, the, the kind of system that is advocated by uh, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, which is a very authoritarian kind of uh, regime. So uh, the, what, I, what I mentioned about Mauritania is how the uh, some of the Islamist groups opposed the position of, of the country against Qatar, uh, but b because they're, they're so marginal, uh, it, no one listened to them. Um, about the, the mediator and who can play the mediation, the role of mediator, um, I think, uh, as I said earlier, the, the, the U.S. Sh are the ones who, are, who can really play the role of mediator, not least because of the, the bases they have in, in the Gulf. And actually, they have bases in, in Qatar and in the UAE. And as uh, Trump said recently, uh, if, if it was not the American umbrella, the, maybe there would be no, no kingdom anymore. And uh, he, he's, he's right to a lot of extent. Um, but... The U.S. is not really playing that, that role, or today at least cannot really play the role of mediator. Um, the EU and the U.K. Uh, could, in theory, but um, because of their own economic problems, they cannot risk uh, angering Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, you, you only remember the, the role with Canada. Um, and, uh, yes, the EU took a position, but then... That's it. You know, the, today there is business as usual. Now there is the story of of, uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and um, if if uh, if this was uh, if if the story was in Iran, maybe maybe Iran would be under sanction today, and maybe um, European banks would have boycotted uh, Saudi Arabia. But the, the EU really cannot actually cannot impose sanctions on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and um, cannot do a mediation if it's not asked uh, to do it by by the it's just Saudis. It's Right on the EU doorstep. Isn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so that—that's you know uh, that's I think the the, the other issue because um, the EU is accepting this kind of marginal role in this issue, uh, but that will create more problems for the EU in in the future. And same thing with the UK. Uh, while uh, you know I, I said all this, but I still think that um, if the UK and the EU come together, of course they first of all need to come together, but if they come together uh, with, um, w with a response to, uh, to the Saudis and the Emirates, uh, because 
clearly, as I said, Qatar is on, on a weaker side, so Qatar will accept any kind of mediation today. But if they come with a stronger position, uh, using, for instance, uh, the fact that um, it's it's here that uh, the bank accounts of most Saudi and Emirati uh, leaders are, it's here that uh, their people come and and um, uh, and spend their vacations and so on and so on. Um, they may be able to play a role. Um, and just with uh, for Russia, uh, it's not playing uh, the role of mediator uh, in in the Gulf, uh, but it's it's possible. I mean, in 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 because the way I think what's happening with Russia today is they are um, they they are overstretched between uh, Syria, Ukraine, and Syria, and now they are uh, there are talks about Libya, but I don't think that's very serious. But still, so they they have interest in Libya, and by the end of the day, Russia is not is not this big country. It, it, tries to, to, it claims to be. I mean, it, it's big in geography, but economically, it's not uh, It's not very strong. Um, but if, um, I think if the Russians uh, see more and more American uh, status quo in, in the Gulf, uh, they may want to take that opportunity. And today, um, the Russians actually are very well-placed uh, to, to, to play mediation in the Gulf because, one, they have good relations with uh, everyone there, uh, including Iran. And, um, and two, they, they, they enjoy kind of a positive uh, image among, um, among the peoples of, of the region. But they're not yet ready to do it. Any last questions or comments? Uh, yes, ma'am. They've spoken about the Saudis and the Emirates as well-constituted in terms of foreign policy in Israel, but they have their own divisions. Could you talk about those divisions? Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Uh, yes. I was wondering, is, um, is there any anti-Gulf sentiment? Because you've talked a bit about like how in Tunisia the kind of Qatar Emirati divisions fall along partisan lines, but given that there's more and more kind of anti-political sentiment, mm -hmm. More and more people not voting. Mm -hmm. are, does that also speak to kind of, uh, maybe an anti-Gulf sentiment? Mm -hmm. any, any last, last one? Uh, all right, great. Uh, the divisions between the, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, yes, they. The, I mean, this was first of all. I mean, we all see now in in Yemen, for instance, there are a lot of disagreements between them uh, on on how to deal with the Yemeni crisis. Uh, in um, in uh, Libya, to a certain extent, uh, there is um, the with with these groups that the Saudis are funding. Uh, they they don't always uh, fit well with the with the groups that the UAE uh, is funding. In uh, Tunisia, actually, the um, I described the, the the very tense relationship that Tunisia has with the UAE versus the good relationship that uh, Saudi Arabia uh, has or is building with uh, with Tunisia. So clearly, uh, they, they are not, uh, I mean, the, the story of um, MBZ uh, is the one who is uh, controlling MBS and MBS is following, uh, following like a blind man behind him. Uh, that's uh, not, uh, that's not completely accurate. Um, so there are divisions, but for the moment, and as the last, uh, I think, eight years or seven years have proven, uh, the, have proved the, the, these divisions are quite marginal. I mean, the, 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 the big, um, I mean, the big strategy, the grand strategy of uh, countering political Islam and 
the next phase is, was, and is uh, continues to be countering democracy in general in the region, um, not just because they hate democracy, but because they are worried that that democracy would bring regimes that um, that uh, that are against them. Uh, I think that grand strategy uh, succeeded, and so uh, whatever the divisions are um, between them, it's it's working very well. And actually, the the Emirates. Uh, are uh, very very keen on on uh, very keen on uh, on showing to the Saudis that they are not uh, although there are divisions that they are really uh, following their uh, the, the the major guidelines and you you have often uh, exaggerated uh, proofs of subordination by the UAE uh, towards Saudi Arabia when when there is for instance uh, the national Saudi day there are celebration in the UAE as if it was the, the, their own national holiday uh, when uh, um, uh, I mean, the, the, often uh, on Twitter, because that's a very big thing in, in the Gulf, uh, Emirati officials often tweet things about uh, about the Saudi leadership and the wise Saudi leadership and so on. So um, I think the divisions, at least for now, uh, are not um, are not taking the country and are not taking. Uh, I, I mean, are not dividing them. Uh, Chloe, sorry, I, your question again. Um, I was wondering if. In Tunisia, in particular, is there kind of a growing anti-Gulf mm -hmm. sentiment in terms of, especially in terms of public opinion, but also maybe in terms of independent politicians mm -hmm. or third-party politicians? Yeah. Um, I'm tempted to say yes. But then, even among the most anti-Gulf uh, elements, uh, they, I think I said this earlier, they find themselves, even against their will, uh, in one of the two camps. So just to give you an, exam an example, uh, last week the, um, the Popular Front, which is this very, uh, which is actually like, uh, I don't know, Podemos uh, in, in Spain or something, uh, but no, no, more of, uh, this is a very like communist, uh, like communist movement uh, that has a youth element, but it's mainly a very um, uh, leftist, uh, openly communist uh, movement. Uh, and they often have statements against the Gulf in general. So the statements would be, uh, they would describe, I mean, in very racist words, the, these uh, the Bedouins with their camels. This is the kind of rhetoric they use against um, people from the Gulf. Um, and they generalize. It's not just against Qatar or the UAE. For them, it's Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, the same thing. But just last week, they have this. They had this uh, press conference uh, with apparently proofs uh, against Anada to show that Anada is actually having Anada has uh, a an, uh, secret, a secret uh, agenda, the secret. Uh, uh, police and uh, that another is actually behind uh, the, the political crimes that took place in Tunisia. Uh, and actually, when you listen to the to, to the to the proofs they gave, um, these are the, exactly the same thing that you hear in the um, in the Saudi and the Emirati media against the Muslim Brotherhood. The accusations against uh, another are the same thing that that um, come from the Saudi Emirati Egyptian axis. And uh, of course, these accusations were then largely shared by um, the Saudi and Emirati media, but also because, again, you know, when, when we talk about Saudi and Emirati media, that's, it doesn't stop there. It's also the Saudi and Emirati 
leadership and and uh, soft power around the world. So these are the words that are uh, said by Saudi and Emirati diplomats, let's say, to their colleagues in 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 the countries where they are. Uh, and so, a group like the Popular Front. Even even though they are openly opposed to to Gulf politics in Tunisia, uh, they find themselves playing the uh, playing that game. And uh, today, I don't see anyone in Tunisia openly um, opposing the the this meddling by by Gulf uh, politics. Uh, and the same can be said about uh, the, the other countries in uh, in uh, in North Africa, uh, Libya. I mean, in in Libya, in in Eastern Libya, most observers. I mean, th there is no one in Eastern Libya today openly calling for um, to stop the, the meddling, apart from a few marginal groups. Um, and same thing in um, in um, same thing in Morocco or in Mauritania. Great, uh, thank you so much. That was fascinating, and thank you for coming. So, thank you. <laughs> thank you.